Hello and welcome to Frankly Speaking, where we dive deep into regional headlines. I speak with leading policymakers and business leaders. I am Katie Jensen. On this episode, we hear from Bada Jaffa, the president of Crescent Petroleum, the oldest private oil and gas company in the region, and a special representative for the COP28 Climate Change Summit hosted by the UAE next month. CEO of Crescent Enterprises and managing director of the Crescent Group. We ask him whether the criticisms against the UAE hosting the summit are justified, his role in ensuring the event creates a lasting legacy, and whether the rapidly escalating fighting between Israel and Palestine could also be devastating for the region's oil markets. But I thank you for joining us on Frankly Speaking. Now, the UAE has attracted massive backlash for planning to host a major climate change summit next month, COP28, considering it's also one of the largest oil and gas producers in the world. Frankly speaking, do you think that criticism is fair, considering that COP has previously been conducted in countries like Scotland, but barely received any kind of the same backlash? Katie, so I feel compelled to say that we must not forget the true purpose of everything being discussed including climate change on respectable programs such as this the why if you will surely it's to safeguard and secure the one the well-being of humanity and our habitat focusing on our most vulnerable and this is especially pertinent with the incredible suffering that we witnessed this week including as a result of war being waged on some of the most defenseless and voiceless civilians on earth. Think about it, and I'm speaking now in figurative terms. When your house is burning, it's silly to expect you to contemplate adding solar panels to your roof or to worry about limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees by 2030. You're simply trying to survive another day, another hour. And this is a problem with a lot of the green political agenda being preached today, with so many struggling to make ends meet or even survive, who may see this rhetoric as Western elitist bigotry, ignorant of their human realities on the ground. So we can no longer decouple the human development agenda, which, which is 12 uh, of the 17 SDGs, from the climate agenda or the nature agenda for that matter. They are two sides of the same coin. And the edge of that coin is conducive climate policy that embraces a greener evolution of all of our systems whilst ensuring equitable opportunities for the billions who haven't yet been afforded them, including the 800 million without access to electricity today or the 2.3 billion with no access to clean cooking fuels. So, Katie, and frankly speaking, what we need is less preaching and finger pointing and more extending hands of cooperation. You know, there's an old and very wise Native American saying, every time you point a finger in scorn, there are three fingers pointing right back at you. And so rather than undermine the authentic efforts of others to build momentum and action towards addressing global challenges such as climate change, 
everyone and all nations need to look in the mirror with intellectual honesty and ask themselves if what they are doing themselves is actually helping the situation as opposed to playing self-interested politics and making things worse by creating larger trust gaps across the world that will guarantee that we never reach our climate and nature goals. And very quickly, honestly, this is what the UAE and its stewardship of COP28 is all about. In just two generations, the UAE rapidly diversified its economy with over 70% of GDP today generated outside petroleum. Our green agenda launched in 2015 and net zero by 2050 strategy transparently presents an implementation plan that further transforms our economy towards a net zero and nature positive future whilst generating massive opportunities for all. The UAE has committed to invest over $160 billion in clean energy in the coming years, keeping in mind that Abu Dhabi's Masdar is already the largest single renewable energy investor in the world. And finally, on the all-important nature-based solutions front, which can deliver one-third of emissions reductions required, the country is in many ways taking the lead in raising the world's ambitions by championing numerous initiatives to protect and nurture natural carbon sinks including reversing deforestation and initiatives like the mangrove breakthrough to restore 15 million hectares of mangroves globally. So the COP28 UAE and, COP and, and the UAE itself and its trailblazing president, uh, uh, Dr. Sultan al-Jabr, has an unparalleled opportunity to create a paradigm shift in thinking and doing towards achieving our urgent climate and nature goals. And again, these global challenges ultimately require locally relevant solutions. And COP28 provides a truly inclusive platform upon which diverse people from all regions of the world can come together with our business, policy, and civil society stakeholders to co-create pathways to success. So again, okay. stop. So we must stop the finger pointing. <laughs> and reductionist thinking mm. and focus on delivering inclusive delivery mechanisms mm -hmm. that compound all our strengths so to deliver on our inclusive solutions and, and it feels like you're also saying there's certainly not a one uh, a one size solution for a one fits all solution for everyone that nations uh, need to have their energy transition uh, i think really analyzed according to whether they are a developing or a developed nation but what, uh, according to your perspective, what would a successful COP28 look like to you with your perspective? What would you see that, that constitutes a real home run here? So, Kate, the, 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 the private sector, including philanthropy, in my opinion, holds the greatest promise to accelerate the accomplishment of our climate and nature global goals. I honestly believe that a major reason the COP process overall hasn't been as successful in implementation and action as it has perhaps in declarations and pledges is because business has not been properly engaged in the process. And this needs to change and will change with COP28. Another critical reason why the authentic inclusion of business is no longer optional is because business can provide the all-important connective tissue between COP presidencies. We've all witnessed over the years the flip-flopping by various governments, mainly in Europe and, and perhaps even the US, with warring political parties playing ping-pong politics with climate policies, and some even pushing net zero off the cliff to suit domestic agendas. 
the, the constant failure of many nations to abide by their climate finance pledging is another reason why we can't simply rely on pledges. So this disconnect and this discontinuity is a killer to a process like COP. But then, but then how, do you, action, how do you turn that can, talk into action? Again, you're saying it's important to be able to engage the private sector here. Um, and you mentioned certainly we've seen some incredible pledges over the years, but they haven't been implemented. What is key to changing that? Because some of the statements you say are incredible, but how do we make sure that we're not just talking about purely idealistic goals here? So this is where business and philanthropy needs to come in, mm -hmm. right? By providing action-oriented connectivity again, between COP milestones, which is why the COP28 presidency will host this year for the first time the Business and Philanthropy Climate Forum on the 1st and 2nd of December, concurrently with the World Leaders World Climate Action Summit, which is a CEO-level format to break down silos and mobilize global business and philanthropy leaders along with policymakers to ensure the co-creation, collaboration, and acceleration to unlock solutions and drive bolder results in line with the president's, with the COP28 president's action agenda. So, for, for, you know, the forum attendees will look at targeted solutions for accelerating technology transfer, uh, de-risking green investments, enabling effective investment for nature conservation, uh, enabling climate SMEs and startups, and investing in resilience for the most vulnerable amongst other essential private sector outcomes. And remember, this is driven by the UAE's ambition to host a truly inclusive climate conference that marshals full and broad support with engagement from all regions of the world. Again, which is why the forum is partnering with the likes of the Sustainable Markets Initiative, the OECD, the World Economic Forum, the Asian Development Bank, the African Finance Corporation and others to make sure of this. Okay, well, let's talk about that in a little bit more detail because I know you, uh, I understand you're quite close to His Excellency Dr. Sultan Al Jaba, who, as we know, is the president-designate of COP28. Now, uh, I saw recently uh, you and him were ringing the bell at the New York Stock Exchange, and I understand that he has personally uh, appointed you as the COP28 special representative for business and philanthropy that you mentioned there. What are you hoping to achieve in that capacity? Because again, some big goals there, but how do we actually turn that talk into action? Are you expecting major deals to be signed at the event or what will success look like for you uh, in your capacity as that role? So other than having a rich agenda for representatives from the business and philanthropy communities from across the world to come and engage and learn from each other, COP28 and this forum is all about outcomes. So the idea is to make sure that we bring these stakeholder, stakeholders together alongside policymakers to co-create solutions and make sure that we're delivering outcomes in the run-up to, at the event, and in the months after COP28 itself. Now, I've mentioned a little bit about businesses engagement and some of the things we hope to achieve at the forum itself, but I would like to spend just a little bit of time on philanthropy. Um, you know, I have often referred to philanthropy as being the forgotten child of the capital system. We must dispel the myth that philanthropic capital is too small to make a difference. These capital flows are at least a trillion dollars annually, which uh, is more than five times ODA, official development assistance from governments. But the real focus should not be on the quantity, but the quality of this large pool of capital. Strategic philanthropy has the ability to deploy flexible, 
risk tolerant and patient capital in ways that uniquely leverage business and government capital and create that multiplier effect. And this is especially relevant to climate philanthropy. Climate philanthropy really can be the glue that binds business, government, and civil society together in concerted action to achieve our net zero and nature positive goals. Okay, so and let's even talk though about, the, let, even though I, the I want to ask you about some of that. Of, I, I'd love to ask you about some of that climate philanthropy, because as we know, we mentioned the forum that is taking place in December. Let's talk in a little bit more detail about that, the business and philanthropy climate forum that you'll be hosting at COP28 in December. Uh, now, we've heard some rumours about the guest list. We've heard there are some big names attending. Some are talking about the likes of King Charles, Bill Gates and other similar heavyweights. What can you tell us about the agenda and the attendees? I know that you've also uh, just about to announce some big partners joining you in the forum too. So the primary objective really as you build a rich agenda is that you're building an agenda around outcomes and not around names. And that's exactly what we're doing with the forum and I believe at COP28 more broadly. So that's really been the focus in the last couple of months is to make sure that the agenda is not just relevant to the COP28 and primarily of course relevant to the COP28 action agenda or the president's action agenda, but also making sure that it's relevant to the communities that this whole agenda and the outcomes need to serve. That's been the priority and of course, Based on that, the idea is to bring in key stakeholders and representatives that represent some of these outcomes and invite them to come and speak so that the broader, well, to speak and engage so that the broader community uh, coming to COP uh, can engage with them and learn from them uh, and also discuss uh, different ideas that they may have. So those announcements will hopefully, hopefully happen in the weeks ahead, but I can assure you that it will be inclusive from all regions of the world and also inclusive from an industry and sector perspective. So certainly some big goals to achieve at the forum, but uh, I want to pick up on something uh, you mentioned a moment ago, and it's something that you've talked about previously on your blog about how we're seeing a new generation of philanthropists who are changing the world order. Uh, you mentioned uh, then that trillions of dollars from emerging market economies are going to be handed over to younger family members in the coming years. So uh, I'd be interested to understand what role do you see emerging markets and particularly countries from the Middle East playing in global philanthropic efforts today? So it's worth just pointing out that the current levels of climate and nature philanthropy is low as a percentage of overall philanthropy, probably less than 2% of overall philanthropy. But I believe we're at an inflection point. And we will see in a major scale up of climate philanthropy in the years to come, not least because, as you've just mentioned, we're experiencing a major wealth transition taking place across the world with 70 trillion dollars expected to pass to the next generation within the next 20 years. And this next gen far more attuned to the interconnectedness of climate with a wide range of societal issues, including implications for public health food security, biodiversity, and economic equity. So these trends are being embraced by the COP28 presidency, fully recognizing that addressing climate mitigation and adaptation is an enormous undertaking and no single funding source 
will have the capacity or solutions to meet these needs. Well, let's talk a little bit more widely throughout the region because we've just seen Saudi Arabia host its second MENA climate uh, a week now. A fascinating announcement. It talked about its roadmap in our plans to plant 10 billion trees in the coming years. So tell me, what are your thoughts on the Saudi Green Initiatives and how do you think they're going to affect and impact not only the region but the entire planet? So when we talk about the Saudi Green Initiative and other initiatives across the region, this is all really in line with the energy transition that is taking place. So it's worth just saying a few words about that. For years, I've been advocating sensible energy policies for a green evolution of energy systems, both via supply and demand, whilst ensuring that we do not put energy security at risk or impede the economic and social progress of developing regions. What this entails, broadly speaking, is first an acceleration of the coal to gas switch and power generation. In, in the past five years alone, this has reduced global CO2 emissions 100 times more than all the electric cars in the world today. Second, cutting methane emissions and fast. Methane is 80 times more potent than CO2 in warming the atmosphere. COP28 hopes to deliver some bold actions here, which the oil and gas sector must take on unwavering responsibility for delivering on. Of course, about 30 to 35 percent of methane emissions comes from agriculture practices. So this is another area that requires bold action. Third, very importantly, rapid scale up of renewables, whilst, of course, continuing to invest in R&D to bring generation costs down and develop large scale energy storage solutions. You know, the Middle East and Africa is one of the fastest growing regions for solar power development. Abu Dhabi and Dubai house two of the top 10 solar parks in the world, with the world's cheapest electricity today being solar generated by the UAE and Saudi Arabia. So, and COP28's push for a global pledge to triple renewable energy capacity by 2030 is exactly the sort of uh, targets that we need. And uh, if you allow me, fourth, the stronger push to greater energy e efficiency, including the adopt adopting of new energy tech, of course, encouraging more sustainable consumer behavior. Again, COP28 is pushing to double energy efficiency by 2030. And finally, very importantly, since you mentioned that protecting and restoring natural ecosystems, you know, deforestation accounts for about 15% of net emissions. That's about the same as every car, truck, bus, plane, ship, and train on the planet combined. And despite that, since 1990, we've been losing forest area three times the size of the UAE every single year. So the COP28 pre president will, will push nature-based solutions and it'll be part of the, and really a key part of our delivery part, uh, uh, platform, thanks in large parts to the efforts of Razan al-Mubarak, the COP28 climate champion and president of the of the IUCN. And I think uh, it's about managing that energy transition. I think I think you do make an interesting point. We had a similar sentiment from the former number 10 Downing uh, Street Chief of Staff. She was on our program, Ms. Fiona Hill, recently. And she was warning uh, again. She was saying, obviously, I understand the need to address climate change. But she warned that we are at risk of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. She said we need to be able to set more realistic targets when it comes to the energy transition. It seems like that is something that you would support as well. Look, if the first sustainable development goal is to eradicate extreme poverty by 2030, we must look at both energy 
and society's challenges through uh, the single lens. And by thinking about society and energy as two sides of the same coin, countries can fully evaluate smart energy policies as enablers of development, especially in regions like the MENA region, where supporting a fair and just energy evolution must also facilitate economic growth and result uh, in, in critical jobs. Stunting economic and social development, which is undeniably underpinned by affordable and accessible energy, and which has seen global poverty rates fall by over 75% since the 1990s, is simply not an option. On a related note, let's not overlook the fact that over 40% of cumulative global emissions from the beginning of the industrial age were generated to fuel the economic prosperity of the US and Western Europe, despite the fact that both together account for less than 7% of the global population today. In comparison, just 2% of emissions has come from the entire continent of uh, Africa. And so whilst significant progress has been made in the past decade uh, on various aspects of energy accessibility, progress has been unequal across regions. Uh, the top 20 access deficient countries account for 80% of the global population without access to clean fuels and technologies. And I think, I think that's forget. an important point to mention because uh, I saw you were speaking with our team at Arab News and the World Economic Forum in Davos this year, and you said the world is not dealing with an energy crisis, but rather a management crisis. And this has only been exacerbated by not investing in critical sources in previous years. And you mentioned uh, yourself there that a lot of the governments, particularly Western governments and their economies, have really profited off fossil fuels and their booming economy supported by that. Would you say then that these Western governments are the ones to, are the reason that we are now in this mess when it comes to our climate? Most discourse in the West's energy policy circles today, or I should say political arena, seem to be obsessed with a starting point, a world dependent on fossil fuels and an end point, right? A net zero world to replace the old with the new, with a fantasy flick of the switch and dividing the problem into zero-sum camps. And when we think about problems in this reductionist way, we fall victim to our gap instincts, right? Us and them, the West and the rest, we create warring groups with an imaginary gap between them that creates an impossible choice, especially for many emerging nations who feel bullied into choosing between climate goals or growth. And such gaps instincts have moved the world further away from climate goals. Greenhouse gas emissions are, as you know, 50% higher today than they were in the first COP in 1995, which, by the way, is about the same percentage increase in our global population over the same period of time. So, so do you think governments the in the West are years, taking responsibility then? Again, we talk about the increase in emissions. Do you think these Western governments have taken responsibility or do you think there is still too much finger pointing? As I mentioned, as we look to the next 25, 30 years, the most important thing we can do is to look at the evolution of our energy systems and all our systems in tandem with the environment and society as a whole. Uh, and I'd be happy to elaborate on what we need to be focusing on specifically, as I think I already have done in terms of the various system changes that we can look to do, including, by the way, some difficult things to achieve. But as mentioned, there is low-hanging fruit that we just need to grab. And that is something that, again, COP28 will put forward as priorities, including things, as I mentioned, like the methane uh, challenge, which is very addressable and doable in a short space of time. 
Well, let's talk about your own energy transition as well, because in 2021, Crescent Petroleum became one of the first in the industry to achieve carbon neutrality across its operations. And uh, you offset the remaining emissions to support wind power projects in places like China and Mongolia. So what kind of progress are you making towards becoming net zero? And frankly, is that even possible for an oil and gas company? So in many ways, our evolution as a group has followed the evolution of our local economies, where we started out 50 years ago as an upstream oil producer, moving into gas in the 80s, in many ways pioneering the gas to power shift and a broader diversification of our businesses into other sectors, where, whereby today oil and gas makes up less than half of our group's top line. At Crescent Petroleum, natural gas now makes up uh, well over 85% of our total production, uh, the majority of which is in Iraq. Uh, the gas uh, project there so far has saved over 50 million tons of CO2 emissions by replacing diesel with gas uh, in power generation, which is the equivalent of removing one and a half million cars off the road. Our carbon intensity is less than a third of the industry average. Uh, we also recently announced achieving net zero, as you mentioned, in our Iraq operations. At Crescent Enterprises, uh, various platforms all have sustainability embedded in their operations and their business models. CE operates, owns, uh, and oversees the region's largest independent ports company, Gulftainer, uh, and again with transport and supply chain challenges at the core of many economic and social development challenges accounting for about 60% of global oil consumption. This represents a huge opportunity to introduce new green tech into all our processes and operations uh, across uh, the four continents uh, that we have ports and operations in. And worth just mentioning the two investment platforms that we have, CE Invest and CE Ventures, because they're both very active in green tech investments. In the past three years, we've invested over $400 million across the world in the sustainable investments. Uh, over 70% of which has gone into global growth markets. And finally, the, the CE Creates, which is our in-house uh, incubator. It's a venture incubator, uh, which already has launched a number of green tech startups, uh, such as ION, uh, which is a green mobility business that has ambitions to create um, the largest private zero emissions transport infrastructure uh, in the MENA region. So certainly some big progress there. But on the on the flip side, we've also seen your production increase by more than 64% in the last five years. So how do you respond to critics who say that Crescent cannot be a champion of sustainability if your production of fossil fuels continues to expand at such a rapid rate? So as always, you have to look at the detail, and this is not done enough. And if you look at the detail with our expansion, our increased production of gas is displacing liquid fire power generation. So that has massive green credentials, because if it wasn't for the gas we'd be producing, then these power stations would need to burn diesel, right? So again, if you look at the detail, um, it's very clear that these are all very much in line with the greener evolution of our energy systems across the region, which is exactly what I've referred to as being conducive with green energy policies, as opposed to just politicized rhetoric. And I think the word evolution is key there. Uh, now, I want to ask a little bit about your work in Iraq. You have several major contracts there. Do you think these contracts will ever be fully achievable, considering the ongoing security and political challenges that we see there? So everything that we do, not just as a family business, but also as a business that's uh, engaged in long-term infrastructure projects, is think about the long term. 
Uh, we believe that, again, energy itself needs to unlock opportunities for millions of people who have yet been unafforded access to those opportunities. And so doing that, again, in a sustainable way, but in a way that transcends, if you will, some of the politics that exists is very important for our whole region. So we feel deeply committed to all the work that we do wherever we do it. And Iraq is no different. Now, I'd like to get your thoughts on a major event we've seen over the last week or so. The devastating crisis between Israel and Hamas. It has dominated headlines and as well as the enormous loss of civilian lives. We've also seen oil prices affected by the fighting too. There are concerns that the crisis could interrupt uh, the region's oil output. Do you think that the market concerns are justified? Right now, I'm not interested in market concerns when it comes to human suffering. Human suffering is front and center and should be front and center of everybody, of everything we're doing and thinking about right now. So the, the market is neither here nor there as far as I'm concerned. But I thank you very much for your time on the program today. Some really interesting insights and we wish you the best of luck at the forum. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.